Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. We've got a great show. It starts with Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp, followed by a discussion on the soccer weekend with Taylor Rockwell of the Total Soccer Show, followed by my talk with Common Goals dynamic creative team of Zach Goldman and Nathan McVitty, who did the branding and identity work for this show. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Jurgen Klopp. Our guest now is Jurgen Klopp, the manager of Premier League leading Liverpool, which restarts its league campaign on June 21st against crosstown rival Everton. Jurgen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's the first time I've seen you since October. A lot has happened since then. It's been a difficult three months around the world with the virus. How are you doing? How is your family doing? Yeah, it was difficult indeed. It is difficult still. Um, family, family-wise, family uh, we are good. Yeah, we came through this period so far. Um, so I uh, locked down with my missus for, uh, I think, 13 weeks still happily together so that was pretty we didn't need a test but um if, if it would have um, been a test we passed it um brilliantly so that's good um yeah no it's it's just a, a, a strange moment and i hope in a i don't know when months um years and we will look back and and then we can all say we were part of this and and we did it so we we, we survived not only um really literally but um, as a society as well, that will be really important. And um, so that's um, so far, it's okay. It's okay, it's different. Everything is different, but it's okay. And um, as human beings, we, we had to get used to a lot of things in the past, not so much this generation, but um, it's a proper test for this gener generation now. And um, so, yeah, um, I think so far we did okay. The other big global news story is Black Lives Matter. The protests against police brutality toward black Americans, black citizens around the world. What have your thoughts been seeing these protests, not just in America, but globally? First and foremost, I have to say the biggest disappointment for me is really that we still, that we still have to talk about these kind of things, about racism, um, any kind of racism. We all, that's, that, that's what, I, what I'm really disappointed about. And if you, when you work in football, um, I've, as, a, as a kid, maybe not so much in the area I, I came from, but it's been from, from a youth age on, uh, it was completely normal that different races play in one team. And we never, never ever one second judged that person, <coughs> sorry, uh, because of whatever, where, where he came from. It was all about, is he a good player, is he not a good player, is he a nice guy, is he not a nice guy, and you didn't even see uh, the differences. And that's, that's exactly the same. So I'm... In this bubble, in this football bubble, it was never, uh, never ever an issue. But of course, um, and it's like, uh, as a man, you cannot really know how it is to, to give a baby a birth. So you know, no, it's obviously tough, um, but you have no real experience. So you try to, 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 to be empathic and, 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 and feel with your missus or with, uh, with a specific woman. And that's a little bit for me of that with racism. It's the same. If you are not in the situation, you talk about it, but you cannot feel it 100%. You understand it, but you cannot feel it. And that's why it's so important that we really, that we really um, um, open our mouth and, 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 and speak out about this really, really important thing. They obviously... Two, two different 
things I would say. One is racism. One is, uh, the, is, is the, the issue with the police um, in America. So we came up, at least I understood it like this. And another thing, how I understood it, I'm a, I have a very, very positive picture about policemen. Very. So if I see a policeman, I smile, I'm happy he's around because in my understanding, he tries to help me. So that's the thing. And now we have these two things in this moment. It's, it's always important to talk about issues and talk about problems 100%. I have to talk about it in the right manner. So that's it. I would say the majority of the people are, no, are not racist. So that's how it is. And the majority of the policemen are brilliant. Do a brilliant job and all that stuff. So that's, as long as we see that, we can, we can really go for it. And now we have the next problem. We have the COVID crisis and everybody was locked down at home. And now we go in the streets and fight for this. So I don't, I don't know 100% what, what is right, what is wrong. I understand um, that it's important to go there. My sons were there, um, did it in Berlin. Um, that's, I didn't tell them stay at home or whatever. That's 100, we are all adults and, and do things like this. But we have to be sensible in these moments as well. We cannot, even in a situation like this, we cannot behave like before or after because this is a special situation. And all the things we did in the last few months, we did to, to save lives. So and we still have to do that. We still have to do that. It's not over yet. I understand that people um, um, want to speak out and they have to, and it's very important. And each thing we do, each message we can have on a shirt, each thing really we can do is important. But don't forget um, how the times are at this moment. So many of us have missed football. You have said before that the most important things in life in a journey are the little things along the way. What are some of the little things about football that you love that you have missed so much over the last three months? Well, for me as a manager, it's easy to say because I miss the boys a lot. I miss the, the, the daily, the daily contact. I miss the daily um, yeah, the training, going out there and, and having these unbelievable skilled boys around and, and, and watch them, of, yeah, watch what they are doing or help them with improving and stuff like this. That was what I missed most. But, um, and what I, what I missed a lot as well is um, being part of this very, very special event, which each Premier League game is. So um, that you go there, it's, it's like the whole week is like a, it goes to, it comes to the point where you, we're all in the stadium, at least all the Liverpool supporters or supporters of other clubs, and celebrate the event. So with a good performance, with a good atmosphere, and all, the best way with a brilliant performance and a, and a sensational atmosphere. And I miss that as well. I miss the atmosphere in the stadium 100%. I will, I will miss it for a little bit longer. But that's how our life is again. So um, if you constantly worry about the things you can't have, you never can be a, a happy person. So in this moment, we have to accept it's not possible. So And as long as it's like this, you have a specific situation, get used to it, use it, and make the best of it. That's the plan. But I miss so many things about my job. I had no clue about that I will miss them because I never had... Um, but that uh, had never such a long time off. Yes, in my little break between Dortmund and Liverpool, but that was real holiday. I didn't, it, it was over after I, I felt like, I don't know how to say it, but like when you fall asleep for a, for a half an hour and you think it was only a second, that was how my holiday was then. And, and, um, in the, and now it was obviously completely different. And nobody knew in the beginning, at least, if we will start at all. And um, with the season or with football again. And um, so that was really strange. I missed so many things and I'm really happy that I have got a few of these things back. Liverpool needs just six points to win the club's first league title in 30 years. The title could come as soon as your next game, June 21st. What would it mean to you personally 
to bring a league title to a Liverpool fan base that has gone so many years wanting to get back to the top of England? It would, would mean absolutely everything to me. And my English is still not good enough to, to express exactly what I would feel if it happens. But I'm, I'm pretty good in um, waiting for the moment and feel it then. Because the main difference now, league-wise, is um, well, about three months ago, um, we won against Bournemouth, I think on a Saturday. On a Sunday, I think City lost. There was a moment when we were 25 points ahead. I didn't think for a second... What will I do when we party? When, where will I be? Where will be the parade? Stuff like this. We didn't think, I didn't think it for a second. My boys didn't think it for a second. We just thought about, okay, we have to play, obviously, a Champions League game, which we lost. But, um, and a few days later, then we would have had the derby against, against Everton, which is a game you never can take for granted um, that you will win it. So that was the only, and now in these three months, when I had an interview, everybody in the beginning, there was the nil and void thing like uh, in the atmosphere the people start talking about nil and void in the season and uh, I was, that was really harsh for me to be honest um, but then when it was clear that that will not happen and all the, all the people asked me pretty much uh, what will you do when what will you feel when and stuff like this and so I had to answer somehow even without having any idea how will I feel what will how will it be I know from the past it would mean everything to me. It was the target from the first day when I stepped in the door of, of Liverpool FC. It, it was always clear that that's the, that's the order the people gave me, the owners gave me and all that stuff. Nobody said to me when it has to be, but it was always we need to get as close as possible. And when you're close, you can make it. And that's the situation we are in now. We are close, but we didn't make it yet. But we have a really good chance to do it. And we are not worried about anything. So we just want to wait for the moment when it then finally happens. And then react in the um, appropriate way whatever will be allowed whatever will people will tell us but um, it will be a massive day in my life if it happens 100 percent and um, a nice one for all the liverpool fans which are younger than 30 and for the others um, a very nice one as well so how does the phrase you'll never walk alone apply to a socially distanced world these days, whether it's playing in stadiums without fans or potentially not being able to have a victory parade with your fans for a bit? Can you still say you'll never walk alone in these times? Oh, 100% you can say it and it's even more, it's even more important. The thing is that you, when you walk, you usually don't walk um, like arm in arm, maybe with your missus, with your girlfriend, whatever, but uh, all the rest are most of the time far enough the distance is enough i would say especially when you walk fast but that's not the thing you know that it's it's a it's an idea it's an it's an anthem it's a it's a feeling and especially in these moments especially in these moments you, you need to you need the support of all the other people and that obviously you know that better than i do that is that is what the, it's the meaning of it that you are never alone and um i hope we showed that in a lot of moments during the during the crisis that we don't let anybody down um, and um, if you need our help you get our help as much as we are able to help and um, the, the boys did, did uh, brilliantly in, 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 the, in, the, in the lockdown and what they, what they did for the community and stuff like that it was really big and I'm really proud of what, what, the, what the boys did what the club did um, and we all had to learn to, to deal with the situation it's nobody usually when you are 53 like me you, you experience a lot of things already. It means that you really, you, you, you 
because life is not that surprising. So the, 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 you, always the same problems come up again. When you're 20, when you're 30, when you're 40, pretty much. And I had all these problems. So I was kind of a solution or a little advice for my voice. But um, in this case, about this, I had not, I didn't know anything. Like, no, like, any, like all the other people as well. So that was really special, to be honest. It was new for me as well. And um, interesting. I don't think anybody needed it. Um, but now we have it. And now we should learn from it. That's the only thing I can say. I'm not sure if you saw it, but there was a good story in an American newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, about sure famous, <laughs> fa famous American coaches, including Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors, who said they have tremendous admiration for you and what you do. And I'm wondering, are there any coaches in American sports that you admire and have had any interaction with? No interaction. Admiring 100%. Um, Steve Kerr is a good example. It's a good example. And Golden State Warriors, um, uh, we must be, yeah, really. I love, I love basketball. I love, I love sports. I don't understand baseball. So I'm probably, I would admire uh, a baseball manager or coach 100% if I would understand the game only a little bit. I have no clue about the game. Um, that's how it is with uh, some other games in, in America. Could I, could I say a lot about um, American football? Not really. But basketball is a game which I'm pretty familiar with, and um, I, so I understand it, I know it, I played it, um, not really good, what makes it even more admirable. And so um, that's all good, yeah. But um, um, from distance, from this time, I'm still, and I'm, I don't know enough about other cultures, I don't know enough. And it's like, we are in a bubble, Europe, so like in USA, if you win in USA, any championship, you are world champion. I like that confidence, to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have to play much more tournaments uh, that we have that chance. But um, yeah, that's completely okay. But it shows you have your special sports, and I don't understand it good enough. But um, Steve Kerr, one hundred percent, Mr. Jackson, which I, when you saw the everybody saw the obviously the, the documentary, yeah, uh, Last Dance. So oh, yeah. seems to be a, a good guy and a sensational manager or coach for sure. So yeah. If I would think a bit longer about it, I would find a lot. In football, it's, um, I have a lot of people I, I admired in the past and in the present as well. We're winding down here with Jurgen Klopp. Thanks so much for your time today. Um, there is an idea out there that you can keep the same players at the top of the sport for maybe a three-year cycle, but it's hard to do it longer than that. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but you've had Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino as your front three at the top of the sport for three seasons now together. Uh, with Salah's birthday on Monday, all three players are going to be 28 years old. How much longer do you think you can keep them together at the top with Liverpool? Well, I'm not worried about that. It's, it's completely clear. I, I didn't understand the number, by the way, when you mentioned it. What was the number? What did you say in the beginning of your question? Three years. It, uh, like you, Basically, you, you said, there's, a, there's a saying that there's three-year cycles at the top for a group. Oh, okay. And, Interesting. And I, maybe after three years, you need like to get some new players if you want to stay at the very top. Yeah, you need to, you, you need to, you need to mix things. It's all, it, look, um, if that's a, a proper... Uh, result of a proper um, whatever assessment or something like that, then maybe I should I should think about it. But um, there always there's always the exception 
um, which is what I would say. And the, the biggest teams in the world were always the exception. Um, Barcelona played together. I don't know how long Xavi, Iniesta and all these guys played together. They, they brought in from time to time different players like Thierry Henry, Bam Bam, um, yeah, stuff like this. Help, they helped, but they never really settled. Slatan Ibrahimovic was there, stuff like this. So it was always difficult to, to do. But it was, it was important for sure. That's how it is for us as well. But in our, our situation, it's is, is absolutely different. We, 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 have, we get the challenges from inside the squad. So we are not that fixed. Yes, it's difficult if you want to find a player with the quality of Sadio, Bobby and, and Mo. Yeah, you have to pay a proper, proper price, to be honest. And so we have to try to build it internally, to build it up, to, to be, become more flexible and stuff like this. Can we play exactly the same football for four, five, six years? I don't know. I'm not too interested, to be honest, because you always have to adapt to the situation you have. If you have to play different football, you have to play different football. The target stays, we have to be successful. So, and as long as the boys are ready for these kind of changes, for these kind of development, for, for the next step, I'm not worried at all. I'm not worried at all. It's very, when you now saw, that when we speak about the last dance, if you want, um, and yeah. you know, obviously the, the main issue, the main issue was, uh, one of the main the issues they had was how to, how to improve the perfect team. And they thought it makes sense that they kick out the manager and they kick out um, plenty of the players and keep just Michael Jordan. So that's for sure. I would say the history showed not only in this case, that's not the right way. So maybe sometimes you have to be patient for a year or so and have to, to, to adapt to the new situation. But if you are really good in what you're doing, if you're convinced about the things you're doing, you can be successful again. Staying successful doesn't mean you become champion every year for 15 years in a row and win all competitions. That's, I would say, is nowadays not possible anymore. But if success stays for you to bring your best performance week in, week out on a pitch, and then you accept the rules of life and the game that there's a post, you can hit it and stuff like this, you can be a perfect play, but you still can hit a post, or the goalie makes a sensation and save, then you're on a good side of it and everything will be fine. So, but we are aware of the situation at, um, at one point. At some point, we have to make changes, but. Um, and we do that constantly, by the way. We change training, we change um, a lot of things. And um, so that's how we try to keep ourselves awake. Last question for Jurgen Klopp. We've seen in the Bundesliga that players are being told not to hug each other after scoring goals. You are the best known person in the soccer world when it comes to giving <laughs> hugs to everyone. How are you going to handle not hugging people? And is that even possible for you? <laughs> Oh, and so I, I, I'm now already a few months in the, uh, in the lockdown. The only person I gave a hug was my, my missus. So that's, um, you can imagine that's for all of us. We all like um, these kind of things, especially with people that we like and we miss it. And if somebody would tell me it's not allowed for the rest of my life, that would be a massive blow, to be honest. Um, but it's, um, it's not like this. And last night um, I watched um, the first game of, of the Spanish league, um, Sevilla against Betis. And... Um, that was already looked much more natural than it was in Germany like three, four weeks ago. I, I hope that was um, allowed there and it's like possible now, but the players had contact. Look, in the, a proper context, celebrate the goals in a, in a, in a proper way. Um, I'm ready to, to take each restriction what we have to, and it's not only about hugging, but I, I'm, I don't want to bring anybody in danger or whatever. But uh, in a moment, it's the same thing like for a lot of other things. When it's allowed again, we should do it again. Uh, hug, giving a hug is only an example for a lot of other things we are not allowed to do in the moment. So and we, should, we really should come back to these really nice 
little things which we all which make life really um, valuable and worthy and um, so I'm, I'm pretty positive that there will be a moment when we all can be ourselves again and that would mean I probably would hug a few people I like so there are a lot of people out there I like so um, a lot of people they deserve it on top of that especially in this club so I'm looking forward to it. Jurgen Klopp it is always a pleasure thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome so I know it was a bit long answers sorry but um, yeah. <laughs> I, I had a flow <laughs> let's bring in taylor rockwell of the total soccer show we just finished with jurgen klopp who's a gent for coming on this show i'm curious to know my friend why does why does everyone love jurgen klopp so much well first of all i appreciate you having me on because i am the natural rejoinder to jurgen klopp we're of the same stature i think uh <laughs> i do it's a great question because i do have a strange affinity for jurgen klopp despite being a manchester united fan so i should be actively rooting against him at all times and yet he is so likable and i think that's probably somewhat a like manufactured thing that i think he's very good about being charming and the big toothy grin uh in his interviews with people and i think he's he's smart from that perspective but then i think also his team playing such exciting interesting soccer and he has such like big names in there but they all seem to have been bought into the system or to have bought into the system so i think it's like exciting soccer and then he himself is an exciting figure so you combine those and you add a little bit of lovable as well and i think you have your explanation i think there's a lot to that and I also find I'm just fascinated by this because like I feel like the Premier League is extremely tribal, the fan bases, and almost everyone appreciates Klopp. I, I did run into one woman who was an Everton fan when I was in Liverpool last October who I told I was doing a story on Klopp and she really hated the guy. Hmm. But I, I felt like she was sort of an anomaly. Like Jose Mourinho is hated yeah. uh, by opposing fans in, and sort of embraces that, whereas I, I think Klopp is just something completely different. Um, Premier League, while we're on that topic, starts again on Wednesday. It does. What are you most excited about with the return of the Premier League? I think there's there's three big things. As I said, I'm a Manchester United fan. I am very excited to see Paul Pogba and Bruno Fernandes in a lineup together. That's not something we've seen. I really like Bruno. I really want Paul Pogba to be successful, and I feel like we'll get an opportunity to see both of them in a midfield. That will be great. I'm really excited to see a healthy Christian Pulisic and what he can do and how integral he is in that Chelsea team, hopefully very much so. And then the third one, we've already talked about it, but Liverpool and how much time it takes them. I'm a, It's not even really an if, but when for them. So how long it takes them to kind of click into gear if they hit the ground running, how long it takes before they're hoisting silverware in an empty stadium. <laughs> I mean, six points is all they need. Yeah. Uh, talked about that with Klopp. Theoretically, Liverpool could clinch the title as soon as their first game, June 21st against right. Everton. If Man City were to lose at home against Arsenal, which seems probably unlikely midweek, um, that said, that's six point six points. Yeah, uh, you know, I would think Liverpool is going to clinch this thing in I probably game two mm-hmm. uh, against Palace at home, um, and certainly if not then game three, um, and and that part of the conversation with Klopp was a little weird because he knows it's going to happen. Like, and yet he still didn't totally want to jinx it by talking about it as if it was absolutely certain to happen. 
Which makes sense because, again, I think he is very smart at how he interacts with the media because I've heard uh, stuff from people who have worked for him or worked with him that he is a very, very demanding employer. And as he is with his players, that's how he is with his front office and his scouts and the administrative people, that he wants everybody doing exactly what they need to be doing. So I think it's probably part and parcel of that, that he doesn't want to give anybody ammunition for, oh, an arrogant Klopp is already counting the titles. I think he's he's smart about how he's going about it. Uh, but maybe he believes in Jinx. If he knocked on wood, then we know for sure. If we hear any knocking in the recording, we know he's superstitious. <laughs> so let me ask you this about Man United and Paul Pogba. Do you think he is going to end up leaving after this season no matter what? Or is this period we're entering right now sort of a final chance for him to say, I want to be with this club long term. It's strange because we've had this break. And I think if you asked me this, if we had this conversation right before the uh, the break goes into place, I would have said he is gone for sure. And I think the only reason why I might feel like he's not leaving is just because things have changed so much and maybe the market isn't going to be as strong, so there won't be as much money spent. But it did seem like he was not enjoying his time. I thought he was going to leave last summer. I didn't think he would stick around. I felt like he was sort of definitely heading to Real Madrid. Uh, but with Zinedine Zidane coming back, I think he still wants Pogba. Pogba. Whether or not they have the money to make it happen uh, it will be the big question there. But I guess this is uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's opportunity to prove that he can utilize him and get the best out of him. And maybe if things turn around and they get some good results, then he will stay. But I think if they don't hit the ground running, it's maybe more fuel to the fire of Pogba leaving. Yeah. Uh, let's move to the continent here. Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, the two biggest stars in the game for more than a decade now. We're back this week. Uh, not a great start for Ronaldo, even though his team Juventus advanced to the final of the Coppa Italia. Weird situation. He fails to convert on a penalty. If you actually look at the replay, Donnarumma has a fantastic mm-hmm. save. Yeah, to get his to get his hand on it and push it off off the cro- or, uh, the post. Uh, bizarre moment because it led straight into a red card for Rebic. Yeah. Um, it, before that, there was a weird VAR review that actually was. Maybe the right call that led to the penalty did. And then, you know, we always talk about Messi in terms of Ronaldo. Messi comes back and is Messi instantly again. And they win for nothing. Barcelona uh, at Mallorca. Uh, Messi scoring goals with his right foot. So, you know, he's kind of having fun. (laughs) And I will tell you this, that Messi, who's about to turn 33, um, it made me feel... Like, I realize there's so many important things going on in the world right now, but, like, watching Lionel Messi play and score goals and do his thing again just gave me great joy. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it is, like, um, I often remind my wife that we're fortunate enough to live in the time period where we can rewatch The Office on repeat constantly. We're one of those couples. And we live in the time period when we can watch Messi and Ronaldo, but mostly Messi, uh, do the things he does on a regular basis. And it is is just sort of, it was a nice reminder this weekend of, like, oh, right, he is sort of this next-level player. And he did, he got the haircut, he got the beard trim, we we got... got the return of the chic Messi, uh, still with the tattoos, obviously. He's not getting rid of those. But uh, it was nice to see him back and looking as Messi-esque as we've seen him. So quick question on the side here about La Liga. What do we think of the blobs in the stands to represent fans? I mean, I, I I didn't think I was going to be a fan of the like piped-in crowd noise, and I was swayed by that. I do think it's cool for the broadcast. The blobs, I'm less a fan of, because I understand what they're going for, but it is just still this weird flat graphic. It looks like FIFA 96 a little bit to yes. me, that they're sort Tecmo of... Bowl. Yeah, it's I don't really know what, what they're going for. I feel like they sh- could just do cardboard cutouts or something, but then you've got to worry about all the cardboard and the printing. I don't know, but that's one that I'm less, less in on. What about you? Did you enjoy it, or do you think the blobs are slightly uh, disconcerting? 
it was just weird uh, more than anything. I mean, they're trying. I get it. Um, like, they're, I, I think the Spanish fake sounds is very similar to the German fake sound. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many other leagues are going to do what. But um, I guess I'm most curious is what's MLS going to do? Because it's not like they're even going to be in stadiums for this tournament. They're going to, like, yeah. I don't I, know, man. man. That's I mean, and we've been. Were you at? Uh, at it's it's being played where the like the All Star Skills Challenge was right uh, in Orlando for All Star last year, and mm-hmm. it, it's an interesting spot. There is not a lot of cover, so it's going to be real <laughs> hot out there. So maybe that will be the the lack of fans in attendance will be less of a priority than the scorching heat and lack of any sort of shade. We'll see how that goes for them. I while we're on that topic, I mean. <sighs> If you look at the COVID test situation in Florida and Utah, and these are the two states where MLS and the NWSL are going to have these hub tournaments, it's getting worse. Yeah. It's going up. And are, are, are we at a point now where we're sort of you know, getting more and more concerned about this, and maybe the players are too? So I, I wasn't, and we've sort of avoided this question on Total Soccer Show just because we're happy to have soccer back. We felt like the Bundesliga was going to take it seriously, and, and thus far they have. Not to say that MLS have not, but I am growing a bit more concerned because we have also had, what, three players now have tested positive uh, in the last week or so. DC United confirmed that a player had, I think, on Friday. And and so all I all I have concerns about there is like we know they're going to be in a like one like hotel area they're going to be sort of quarantined there will be all of the protocols in place and I think as long as the players are abiding by the rules and, and everybody's kind of like keeping things as they should, then my concern is limited because they won't be interacting with the, the general public where those areas are spiking or where those numbers are spiking. But if they are going out, if they are sort of having like team breaks where they're allowed to kind of do things on their own, it, it does make me a little bit nervous because we are having those spikes, as you said. If they are sort of kept in isolation and they're taking it very seriously and we have the socially distanced celebrations, then maybe some of those concerns are downplayed. But I do think the way the testing has been going and the way that we've been seeing some spikes i am more nervous i think right now that i was certainly at this time last week part of this too is i don't think germany's had a positive test yet since Not they that started I know yeah and they've pulled this off really well i just don't want mls or the nwsl to be the ones to screw up globally exactly, yeah. that, that would be embarrassing it, it absolutely would and for nwsl who are the first one coming back if there were something to go wrong it's you know that there would be uh jerks out there who would take that as an opportunity to be like see soccer can't get it together and why are we doing this and there will be some people ready to take shots and and not that we should give them any added weight or those voices any added volume but just that there are going to be people who are sort of actively rooting for both nwsl and mls to have have like people test positive or have it not to not work so i think there it's a gamble that they're taking it's a risk they're taking and i understand why they're taking it but i i, I share your your concern that things could go wrong i am hoping for the best and hoping that there is a strategy i think there will be tomorrow's uh, yeah. show we've got a bonus episode i'm interviewing lisa baird the commissioner of the nwsl nice. and she talks a lot about uh the details of how they've organized this tournament and will be the first u.s sports league to return to play mm-hmm. so uh, i think she's really impressive uh so i hope they find a way to handle this uh, and do it as safe as humanly possible. And I and I think with, I should jump in just real quick to say I think they will because I, I'm aware that like 
I, my focus has been diverted to other, maybe more pressing issues uh, that are currently uh, going on in our country. And so right. I probably have been one of those people who sort of been like, yeah, coronavirus is still there. We'll, we'll deal with that in a minute. And I'm sure that the people in charge of getting these leagues back underway have maybe not taken their eye off of getting things back underway in as like medically sound a way as possible. Yeah, and Lisa Barrett's really impressive. She goes into some detail with me on, on all their protocols and various things about how this tournament came together. Uh, U.S. soccer had a meeting over the weekend. Uh, They also had a meeting earlier in the week uh, in which they voted to repeal the rules, the board, um, the rule against the kneeling protest during the national anthem. That was a rule that went into place in 2017 after Megan Rapinoe had taken a knee protesting police brutality toward black Americans in support of Colin Kaepernick. Uh, This week, U.S. soccer issued, I thought, a good statement apologizing to black players, Mm -hmm. to everyone uh, about the rule, saying they're going to take action in the future. Uh, Over the weekend, they announced a new diversity uh, board that's going to be uh, in place moving Mm -hmm. forward. And Cindy Parlo-Cone, the new president, came out, uh, I think, in an interview with ESPN and apologized once again to all those folks and specifically to Megan Rapinoe, who was basically blacklisted for six months when mm-hmm. she did this back in, in 2016. How do you feel about this sort of about face from U.S. soccer? And are we once again seeing the, the growing power of current and former players? Because it was the Athlete Council that basically swung the election in 2018 for president it was the athlete council in this case and Cindy Parlo Cohn, former athlete, who really pushed the U.S. soccer board to repeal this rule. First off, I'm, I'm very glad they repealed it because I think it was pretty short-sighted that they ever did it in the first place. It didn't really make sense to me why they felt the need to do it then. It felt at odds with sort of the what, what the fan base were calling for, at least what maybe a percentage of the fan base were looking for. Uh, so I think it was certainly the right decision. It does feel like one of those situations when like the apology is appreciated, but I think you got to continue to back that up with actions, as they have so far, so credit to them for that. But I think you have to continue to act and continue to show that you have learned something from what you're now acknowledging was an error. Uh, and I think then you have to give the credit to players like Megan Rapinoe, maybe specifically Megan Rapinoe, obviously Colin Kaepernick as well, but for purposes of this conversation, it's Megan Rapinoe, but then everybody else who sort of pushed it through. We talked about this with Weston McKinney, I think a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago, that players are starting to, it seems like, take a more vocal role in how they want to be perceived, how they want their teams to be perceived, and and really how they want to interact with federations. And we've seen that with the women's team, certainly in their lawsuits and how aggressively they've pursued those. And it does make me optimistic for the way things are going to go forward, that we will have young players and veteran players who seem to be very focused on ensuring their own livelihood, but the livelihood of others, and the social messaging that goes along with those livelihoods. And I think it's, it's all... A positive, albeit from a place that should never have really happened because I don't think that ever needed to be passed in the first place. True. Totally agree with you on that. I would also point out that Megan Rapinoe has said something that has really stuck with me. I think she said it most clearly for the first time in a story by Henry Bushnell uh, for Yahoo that came out before the Women's World Cup, where she said for white people, including her and us, Getting into uncomfortable positions, discussions, is the only way you're going to see real change beyond just cosmetic change. Mm -hmm. And so doing what she did to take a knee and really making people feel uncomfortable is a different thing than we've seen. Like, 
things like I, I totally support players writing George Floyd support on their T-shirts. That's also something that basically nobody's going to disagree with. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's value to doing that and making a public statement. But for the real change to happen, I agree with her. I feel like we've got to get into uncomfortable conversations. U.S. soccer has to get into what, like maybe for its PR people, may not feel like the most comfortable position to Mm -hmm. be in to really put themselves out there. Yeah, I think it, it reminds me of uh, when Pussy Riot protested the 2018 World Cup final. And at the time, I think Daryl and I, when that happened, we were like, oh, that's a strange protest. Like you're running on the field, not realizing that this is what they do. And then like there's an entire social media, you can go online and read about the manifesto and why they're doing this and why they're protesting. And I think that's the thing that has to connect, that it's too easy for like the, the quick headline to become the talking point. And oh, Megan Rapino disrespects American troops. And like, what? That's not the conversation. And I think if you let it be dictated by what the Chiron says, you're not actually delving into the heart of the matter. And I think it's a credit to her that she continued to do it, even when the message was getting manipulated and distorted. And I think it does then kind of sticking with it necessitate having those difficult conversations that ideally then lead to more knowledge or more understanding. At least that's the hope. Yeah, mine too. Uh, There were other things that took place at this U.S. soccer board meeting. Uh, Carlos Cordero, who people may not realize is still on the board despite resigning from the presidency of U.S. I did soccer. not until you put this in the show notes. I will own that one. I was like, well, that's a typo, Grant. Come on. I didn't even realize this for maybe like two weeks before or after yeah. he resigned. The immediate past president remains on the board no matter the conditions for them leaving the office. So presumably, Carlos Cordero could have shot somebody on Fifth Avenue and, and remained on the board. I think oh, I, maybe man. that's maybe that's wrong. <laughs> uh, obviously, what he did do was not the equivalent of shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, no. but he is on the board still. And so he talked about sort of reaffirming some reports we've seen, things that Victor Montaliani, the the president of CONCACAF, has said, hexagonal, very unlikely to happen uh, for World Cup qualifying for 22 in CONCACAF. Most likely scenario right now seems to be very similar to the old semifinal groups where you have 14 groups. But in this case, only the team that finishes first Mm -hmm. would advance. And I have been through, as have all U.S. soccer people, several semifinal round groups that have been absolutely horrible for the U.S. This just like freaks me out. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's certainly, especially in the wake of Cuba in 2017, where that qualifying <laughs> ended, that yeah, anything that feels like, oh, we've only got the one shot and this could go very, very wrong is now very, very uh, disconcerting. But here, like, I think if you look at it, there are certainly ways the U.S. could get into trouble because there's an opportunity for us to be in a group with what, like Jamaica, Canada, uh, Haiti, let's say. That that does alarm a little bit. And you've got teams that are sort of on the come up, like Curacao, who have certainly gotten better. We saw that in the last Gold Cup. So there are teams that maybe are easy to overlook. But once we get into a group with them and sort of really start diving deep on who they have and what they're going to be doing, there is reason for concern, certainly. (laughs) I think we have to be flexible because of the way things are and how qualifying is going to go. And there will be opportunities for smaller teams, potentially with play-ins and what have you. But I don't love it, but I don't hate it. And I guess that's probably what they're going for overall. I understand it. And I realize I'm probably sounding like one of these like sky is falling people. Like, 
when it comes down to it, the U.S. has never been eliminated in the semifinal round of qualifying for the World mm-hmm. Cup. I was there in 2000 in Barbados when the U.S. was 20 minutes away from being eliminated in the semifinal round and then scored like four goals late in that to uh, to get through and obviously went to the World Cup quarterfinals uh, in 2002. But um, if it ends up being that where there are three groups of four and you essentially have to win your group to advance and, and maybe like the best third place team or but the best second place team would be in a playoff against, I should know this, who? I think, it's, I think it's like the teams 13 to like 25 or something like that. They all are yeah. going to be in their own group. And then the winner of that, I think, plays the best second place team. And then that team plays the intercontinental playoff for the final spot. It's okay. a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Well, uh, certainly can't wait to use the term CONCACAF uh, again more often. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good way to put it. Uh, so Taylor Rockwell from the Total Soccer Show, which all of you should check out if you haven't already, which I'm sure you have. Really appreciate you coming on. And let's do it again sometime. I would love that. I think I once again went long, so apologies for that. But other than that, great time, Grant, as always. Now here is my interview with Nathan McVitie and Zach Goldman. My next guests are two of the best. Zach Goldman and Nathan McVitie actually appeared on one of my podcasts in Moscow during World Cup 2018. They are extremely smart guys who do several things really well, including working with me on the amazing branding and artwork and identity of my new podcast, They are part of Where is Football, a dedicated football project you can find online and on social, and Common Goal, a collaborative network and creative studio focused on design, branding, strategy, consultation in a number of industries. Nathan also recently co-founded a firm called Theorycraft, and Zach recently founded Tiger 11 Sports and Entertainment, which we'll talk about in a bit. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. That was uh, enormously kind of you. Thank you. Quite the intro. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I mean, obviously, you might be getting sick of me for as much time as we've uh, (laughs) spent communicating with each other recently, but uh, it has been two years since you were on the podcast, and uh, it was a really cool interview to do with you guys and, and, and do that in person with you in Moscow, and I still have people who listen to it. Alexander Wool, famous uh, former Sports Illustrated writer, remembered you guys by name when I spoke to wow. him uh, a, a couple so of months nice. ago. Uh, wanted to know how you were doing. First off, I want to thank you for the remarkable work you did with the branding and artwork and identity of this podcast. I could not be happier. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, but this is the first time we'd actually worked together on something like this. Could you guys take our listeners through that process? Yeah. Um, I'll jump in. Zach, feel free to cut me off at any moment. But uh, first of all, thank you for having us on it. I mean, that was fantastic. Like you said, the first time we got to work together on our project, um, the stars aligned, so to speak. But, you know, I think from the top, when we first had our discussion, it was exciting. And it was also apparent that you knew what you wanted, you know, you came with an idea of what this podcast was going to be and what you wanted it to be, which makes any kind of creative endeavor or creative project and process much easier. So, I mean, the the most 
too long, didn't read TLDR thing I can say is that the whole thing was extremely easy, which is often not the case with branding or creative projects. But there was a succinct idea and you were open to what we brought to the table. And because of that, it was very efficient. Uh, I think the idea of the name was something that we spent a lot of time on just because that was going to inform everything else. And once we settled and were all comfortable with the name, everything else kind of came pretty free flowing after that, you know, it was Mm -hmm. minimal, but succinct and efficient in its identity. And we were just looking for monikers that weren't too creative monikers that weren't too on the nose or too cliched or outplayed overplayed to use some football terminology. Um, Yeah. And it, it was, there's not too much I can really say on it, which is amazing for a creative project. Um, Just because we didn't have to worry too much. We didn't have to stress. We didn't have too crazy of a deadline. You were very easy to work with. um, And you had such a well-formed idea of what you wanted it to be. You know, I can get into the nitty gritty of the design process, but besides the, besides that, the process itself was fantastic. How about you, Zach? Just sort of how you experience this. Yeah, well, I think things tend to be a lot easier when you guys just crush it and I sort of sit back and go, well, that looks really nice. Um, so that that was good. I enjoyed that part a lot. Um, but no, I mean, yeah, I think I think it was... Uh, I, I look back on it and it feels a little bit like a, a show from the 90s that never actually happened in, in, in a way that isn't dated and, and does feel like it's back in vogue in some ways. I think there's a lot around the football world that, especially in this time where there are no live matches where people are a bit nostalgic and looking back at different aesthetic hallmarks of different eras. And I think we've managed to mix a lot of things when it comes to, um, you know, the typewriter obviously having a a historic feel and then sort of the wild nineties colors. Um, but then also giving it obviously this contemporary edge as well, um, which fits in nicely with, uh, you having so many guests from, from the present, obviously. Yeah, I think just just to illustrate Zach's points that in a design specific sense, we uh, when we were talking through this and we had the name football with Zach, uh, with Zach, with Zach Goldman, with Grant Wall, um, I was thinking about journalism and the different facets of it. Uh, so to Zach's point, we made I started typing out uh, your name and, and football and everything else on a typewriter. I also what ended up becoming Zach, it was a stamp it I actually used in the end. They're very <laughs> similar looking typefaces, but I ended up stamping this with one of those like staples office things that you can kind of like change the letters on yourself and make stamps on paper. So I stamped out a bunch of football with with Grant Walls, uh, you know, a bunch of dates and names and such scanned those in, took them into Photoshop, messed around with it, and everything assembled pretty quickly. There was a few experiments with color and everything else, but the main thesis on this was just that I wanted it to stand out because it's a podcast. It's designed for a podcast. It's always most often shown at such a small resolution, small size. Either that's on your iPhone, your Android phone, uh, on iTunes, even on your desktop computer where you have a larger monitor sometimes. You see these pieces of artwork in such a small place, you know, it's like such a tiny area of the screen. And we just wanted that to stand out and cut through the noise. So if it shows up in the top 10 and iTunes sports podcasts, like it did, 
people would immediately be more drawn to it and be able to be inquisitive even just that one second decision or half a second decision the brain like the synapse in your brain being like what is this it's loud i want to know what it is that can mean the difference between a subscriber and a somebody who scrolls straight past it and if you look at it in a list of other design other podcast artwork pieces it it doesn't really look like anything else even though it's simple and minimal it stands out and that was always the goal well, one thing I loved about working with you guys was the way you understood sort of organically what I'm about and how that might be reflected in how this was presented. And mm-hmm. so, and that includes the name, you know, and we, we ended up getting to, to football with Grant Wall, F-U with the accent mark T-B-O-L, and... I even had someone on Twitter ask why I had chosen this Spanish language term. And I explained just by saying, there's a few reasons. Um, One, I think uh, this country and its soccer fan base is Spanish language and English language. So football with Grant Wall is Spanish and English. Uh, My own personal background is in Argentina uh, from uh, late teens, early twenties with soccer. And so much of my way that I think about the sport is from South America. And also if you call it F O O T B L L in the U S people think of the NFL. And I think even English English only speakers in the U S when they see football, think of soccer. So Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of reasons I think to do that. And, and we will even have, occasionally some Spanish language interviews on this show because sometimes that's what soccer stars are more comfortable speaking, uh, you know, and and fans even in this country. And I want to be inclusive. Um, So I think that was a a big part of it. And also representing me was this sort of typewriter style print uh you know the the letters in the sense that that is sort of my history is print magazines that's what i got started in um, exactly and so uh it just it felt right and and you know in putting a big old accent mark over that you is like to me like i even remember getting letters from readers in the u.s uh it seems like a small detail but you know, thanking me and Sports Illustrated back in the day for getting the accent marks right on the names of <laughs> players from Spanish-speaking countries. Yeah, well, it's it's funny um, if just if this podcast goes down in the annals of history, uh, a little tidbit for those listening in 150 years time <laughs> is that the uh, the accent. So the stamp I ended on the typewriter I have, I bought a beautiful. Olivetti Latera 35 at the beginning of quarantine because I was just craving analog tools to design with. Um, same with the stamps I bought. I've, tons of stuff I've purchased since quarantine. It's really helping me rediscover my artistry in some way. But the um, the stamp I ended up using, I did a test sheet on the typewriter and I didn't love it. It was a little too delicate in some way or not kind of grungy enough in some kind of way. And I noticed that the typography on the stamp was very similar to that of the typewriter. So I did sheets on both and the with the stamp in my mind, it won out. The ink coverage was a little bit thicker and it allowed me to manipulate more in Photoshop. But 
the stamp, it, it only came with a fa fairly basic uh, letter and number set. Surprisingly, it, it came with umlauts and similar, but it didn't come with any accents over, you know, any gra grave or grave accents or mm -hmm. acute accent uh, glyphs. So I had to hack that together. I think I took like a, I don't know, another letter maybe by hand. I didn't even put it on the stamp. I inked it up and just sort of like pressed half of the letter down on the sheet to make the accent. Uh, so that was completely hacked together to get the accent. I knew it was important to do. I wasn't going to provide any artwork without the accent, but I had to improvise to get that accent there. And I think if you start to talk more esoterically, the, uh, the process of being so deliberate with the accent, it's the fact I had to go in and make that by hand is kind of fitting in some way. You know, it's like really the story that you're telling about accents and sports is illustrated in the fact that I'm doing that by hand and taking the time and effort and care to do it well um, is, you know, it's nice. It, it's, it's, I can quickly stamp something that I'm going to scan in, but the fact that I'm going back and adding this one tiny little moniker that means so much to a lot of people and is, you know, accurate and authentic and representative of a language. You can't have a Spanish language accents, right? Um, it says a lot, I think. And it, and it shows that it's something that you care about. It's something that the readers and listeners care about. And it's important to get right. It would be lazy design if it wasn't included. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think it was a nice little uh, process of design and not just the end result, you know. I also, I, I love the colors. And for me, the way that the, the look, which is sort of distressed also reminds me of like what you might see on the side of an old pickup truck in Buenos Aires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and I love that. So, um, you know, I also, the, the, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think the distress in itself, the grunginess of the design, if I'm honest, there wasn't as much meaning behind that versus the rest of the elements. Mm -hmm. um, I think the colors themselves, we, we when we were talking this through on a previous meeting and phone call we all three of us had, we were discussing uh, callbacks and moments and things, the design elements that can really reference the game and reference soccer. So we were talking about greens and whites, you know, the, the markings on the fields. We were talking about yellow and red for cards. You know, there's a lot of colors. And we we're even talking about the blues of Argentina and the whites of Argentina. Mm -hmm. um, and some a lot of design is happy accidents, but we, we had a few sort of signposts that we wanted to include and the colors were one of them. Which And they came together nicely. I, I really hit on the vibrancy and the saturation again to my earlier point of making it stand out and cut through the noise but the grunge that you loved so much was one of those happy accidents i think there was no necessary thought process in my head that we need to design this to make it look like uh like an old pickup truck in argentina but if anything it was it was if there was any meaning behind it necessarily it was just that uh referencing sort of maybe old vinyl or something like that but it was also a lot of that design right now is kind of in in vogue. Is is con contemporary design is distressed in a, in a lot of in a lot of ways. So uh, it was just making it slightly less than perfect because once you have design that's too perfect, it sort of loses its soul in some way. I feel like, um, and it was just a you know just an added layer to give it a bit of character. I feel like. 
I'll also say, and uh, I haven't mentioned this yet, that Nathan and I first kind of worked together in a much different way when you were at Leicester City during oh, yeah. the season. They won the the title in such an amazing way. And we sat together next to each other in the press box. You worked for the club at uh, a game that, was it Norwich City they were playing? And, and uh, it was a game they were supposed to win as they were getting farther and farther to this miracle uh, title win and they got a really late goal and and it was just one of the cooler moments I've I've been in in a stadium with somebody in a long time. That was, so. I think that was the earthquake game. That was Leonardo Ojoa scoring a penalty in like the 89th minute to rescue a 1-1 draw or a 2-1 win. I can't remember exactly. Um, I think they won, yeah. Was it 2-1 maybe? Something like, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was Ojoa who is an Argentinian. Yes. Funnily enough. And uh <laughs> The, yeah, they measured their earthquake on the Richter scale locally. So it's gone down in legend in Leicester. <laughs> so, Zach, I want to start with you on this next question, and I'm curious sure. to hear Nathan's thoughts too. Um, I think you guys have amazing taste. Uh, Thank you. And I suggest that folks follow you on Twitter and get a sense of, of what you guys are about if they haven't already. But, like, what do you think makes for good branding and good design and good kits mm. in soccer and what makes for the opposite on the bad <laughs> side oh man i'm gonna get in trouble no first of all thank you very much it's very very kind of you um i i i think there's uh definitely a breadth of very acceptable answers i think um it's hard to pick you know one thing or, or one class of qualities but i think in in, in my mind so much of what i really um i really enjoy about the sport is obviously things that are rooted in community and things that speak very personally and very intimately to a fan base um so i think the clubs that really have especially in this time during a pandemic where there are no matches on and it's really difficult to buoy the spirits of a fan base or really connect with fans beyond the stadium um, I think the clubs that have done it best have been the ones that have really been um, focused on the well-being of their supporters, making sure their supporters feel heard, making sure they feel included and taken care of. And I think that filters into design as well. Um, I think two of the best kits that I've seen in recent years have both been from the NWSL and were just released. Uh, Chicago Red Stars doing a great kit um, uh, talking about the neighborhoods of, of Chicago and, and then the Portland Thorns yesterday with, um, sorry if I've just dated the podcast with it yesterday, but um, <laughs> uh, the the Portland Thorns with their, their black kit that they just released. Um, I think both of those were really, uh, for different reasons, well-received. Um, but I think in both cases, it was the club confidently designing for a group of fans who they knew would enjoy what they put out. And I think there's no better sense of confidence that you can have on a design level than knowing your audience. Um, I think they know their audience really, really well. And uh, that to me is everything in football, whether it's branding, marketing, even talking to, you know, season ticket holders about renewing, whatever it might be, it, uh, I think you can confidently proceed in that realm by really understanding the emotional touch points. Um, and to us, that's, that's something that we always stress, and it's not always easy. It's, just, it's especially not easy at, at bigger clubs that have fans all over the world. Um, uh, but I think it's, it's certainly something that, that really does need to be addressed at a very early stage and then continue to be um, touched on as, as you go along the design process. What's your sense, Nathan, of what what you like and, and, and what you like less in this area. I think Zach's first point about 
it being an impossibility to sum up this answer succinctly is important to note again. It's so difficult to ever give a science, you know, behind this stuff. But I think there are some key pieces that really allow you success or repeatable success. Everything Zach said, I fully agree with. Also, I think extending beyond that slightly to authenticity, regardless of how you define it, authenticity in the design process, whether that's through communication or liaison with fans and community, I think authenticity in identity, authenticity of knowing who you are, of knowing the space you're in. And if that's a, if that's applying to a football team in itself, a soccer club, it's knowing the locale that you play in and knowing the audience and the market that you have. If, um, the, if you're talking specifically about clothing, then I think it's knowing the demographics you want to appeal to. Football and soccer and, you know, hockey and lacrosse and gaming and everything else. These are all uh, industries and communities and everything else in between that relies so much on passion and on the community, the, the foundation of a shared interest, right? So there is more at stake with this stuff and it applies to music too. There's so much more at stake with this stuff than say with just branding an industrial materials company um, or a computer company, whatever else it is. You're basically working in a framework that people attach their entire lives and their own identities to. So it has to reflect those people and also the things that you've all got a shared passion for intimately and authentically. And if you don't do that in whichever way you define, I think you're going to fail before you begin. So I'm not really an advocate in design and creative for anything corporate, but I think there has to be a level of like soul searching, if you want to call that research, whatever, before you dive in that allows you to understand intimately with what you're creating around. Uh, We've done a lot of projects where we've worked with a community or a club or a brand that we have no real involvement in necessarily beyond being tasked with the process of creative itself. Like we're not from that place or whatever else. And I think the difference that you find is if you want to be successful, you have to be willing and able to immerse yourself and understand those people and interests and the people mm-hmm. who do that the most will often be the people that succeed the best. It, and I think mind. some of that, um, some of that becomes the project. Sometimes some of that research element becomes the project. Um, like I'll tell a story that I, I don't know if we're allowed to tell, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> um, we worked a little bit on the Arsenal away kit launch last year, specifically tasked with, um, how it filtered into the North American market. And really, it's not the first project we've worked on in that realm, but it's it's quite a collision of different cultural considerations when you look at the idea of location in football um, and this idea of a club ultimately representing a place, ultimately potentially representing a neighborhood, um, but also representing something larger if it's, if it's a 
big global club with a following of people far beyond that neighborhood who may never even go there and may have their own unique experience indeed of, of following that team in, in their neighborhood and with their friends and with their community and, and that that really needs to be addressed as well, um, that that's a reality of global fandom in, in 2020. Um, and I think for us, one of the cool things about that was that we were we were seeking to really speak to this idea of um, connecting London and L.A., whether it's people who have moved to L.A. or um, they've raised families, you know, uh, they, they've raised a family in L.A., but um, have commuted back and forth to London. That's how they fell in love with the club. Whatever it might be, there's there's a, a ton of stories of how people fall in love with the football club. But that idea of colliding places is somewhat unique and um you know, not always spoken about. So we 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 spoke with um, a number of Arsenal fans in LA who had different stories of how they came to love the club or um, how they've stayed connected uh, via the football club to a past home. And and to me, that that almost became the project. We didn't really intend to have a full storytelling element in it, but a lot of that copy um, was informed by uh, quotations from our interviews and indeed some of the the interview quotes became almost more important and more impactful than some of the photos we took. I mean, I'm thinking about a father and son who, uh, obviously the, this away kit, if you haven't seen it, it's quite a stark yellow away kit that, that borrows elements from uh, a kit in the nineties. And, uh, we had sort of the, uh, the father and son in the old kit and in the new kit. And obviously that, that photo said enough, but I think, um, it was important to us to, to really frame, uh, the meaning behind that photo in the father and son's own words. And I think that's something that we try and do, whether it's through Common Goal or through Where is Football or through any of our other projects, is really to let people speak for themselves um, and, and let people tell you what something means. And I think the best clubs are the ones that understand that giving that space to fans is imperative. Giving that space for feedback is so important and so vital for ultimately shaping creative. And it's oftentimes not part of the homework that an agency will do because they've only been scoped for the project itself. Um, it's oftentimes not something that a club can do because they're always approaching those conversations as you know a, a representative of the football club, of the office, and you can't always get sort of organic, candid um, uh, feedback from fans in that way. So I think for us, it, it was it was a really special um, bridge between fan and club. Um, and those are the projects that we love to do on a creative level. We love to be able to give fans a voice. Um, and, and ultimately, I think the best creative is informed by that. I remember yeah. that campaign. I, th I didn't know you guys were part of it, which is really cool. Are you plus or minus on the term bruised banana? <laughs> I, I again, I defer to the fans. Is that a cop out? It might be. Um, but I, it, it is a very visual term and I like that. Yeah, I, I think that was an interesting one and I loved it. And it's interesting to note that a lot of the things we've just talked about over the last five minutes or so, they can apply in different measures to the type of project you're working on, whether that's, you know, I took those photographs and I took them on film deliberately because of the time frame and the original Bruce Banana kit came out. But, you know, that was a design project and a photography project as opposed to a branding one. And the different types of projects often call for different measures of the things we've just talked about. So sometimes in branding, you have to do it more in a research and development stage as opposed to like an iterative, let the voices uh, speak while while the project is out. You know, that f the design and photo and feature project we had featured actual quotations, whereas you can't necessarily do that if you're branding a team necessarily. So... Yeah, I think it's it's important. Fans, I think, are always at 
the heart of this and community and everything else they could make a, a very large word map of the most important things when it comes to creative in this space but um community is is way up there right near the top of the list and that's something that came through to me working with you guys on the project for this podcast which i've thought about you know zach had mentioned that he liked the just the name football with with grant wall because it was more of a welcoming uh sense of community Mm -hmm. and even if you go to the i was thinking about it you don't want to be calculating about this and I, I hope I wasn't I don't think I was in the the trailer actually um I I want people listeners to come on this journey I I think I even said totally. that like it's I this is a show that's mostly about interviews and so this is all about us learning stuff together and uh that's my favorite part of doing interviews and the the older I get the more I realize I don't know so I hope that came through without being sound like, you know, sounding like it was artificial. And, and what we're talking about here, like a lot of what you're talking about is similar to reporting, like on this, sure. this project with Arsenal or the other word I think about is just empathy, you know, get, you know figuring out how other people are experiencing things. And, you know, that takes, that's a real thing you got to work at, but if you're curious and and empathetic, I, I think it's just such a a good thing in general, but but also a part of what you guys do for your work and, and part of what I do for my work. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you what creativity has been like. You know, what has it been like to try and do creative work <laughs> during during this lockdown? And I know you've just come out with uh, a COVID mask that you worked on, and yeah. Like maybe there's a connection there too. Yeah, Nathan, I'll let you talk. Nathan um, and and our friend Diana um, did an excellent job uh, doing everything with the COVID mask. So I'll let you handle that one. Yeah, I, I think I'm. I just I think I can't start talking about that without mentioning just how privileged I am right now, and that I have a space. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have good weather, and I have space in which I can feel like I'm able to create creativity for me is so emotional and my motivation and inspiration to be creative they're so dependent on one another so i often will go long long periods of time without being creative whatsoever or productive create productive creativity if i'm not feeling inspired so i'm able in los angeles at the moment to kind of get my head straight so to speak you know and so that allows me to make things so i have to acknowledge that my current location and the privilege of my space right now is is key to that. But that being said, um, it's definitely allowed me to focus less on the um, money issues notwithstanding, or like, you know, pressures of new business notwithstanding. It's definitely allowed me just to experiment more and rediscover artistry, which in turn, once you work on your own artistry as a creative person, whether that's with words or a paintbrush or whatever else it is, defining your own artistry. Um, it allows you to cycle some of that back into your your work day to day. And I think the more artistry everyone rediscovers, the better their regular work will become. So I've rediscovered a lot of that. Even just the artistry of experimentation and ideas and writing ideas down has been helpful. 
uh, which is where the masks came from. I was, I was kind of ahead of this whole thing somewhat, you know. I was sort of kind of sounding the alarm in January after I got back from a trip to Cuba. I was reading the news in like the first week of January and all this stuff. And so I was ahead of it in that sense, but I got kind of caught up in the middle of it because I had to do some travel at the beginning of March and then came back from Atlanta maybe the week after things got locked, started to get locked down. So mid-March. Mm-hmm. And from that point, I was just trying to think of ways that I could help and you know, we're not celebrities and we don't have millions of dollars. So some of the grand gestures and big donations are just impossible and out of reach for us. But I was thinking of just ways we could help. And it wasn't a lightning strike moment, but it was just, you know, why can't we do something like a mask? And we actually had the idea pretty early on before we'd really seen any masks happening. We put out a call and we were asking some friends for help. We found our friend Diana who is the girlfriend of a designer, a very talented designer that we worked with on some projects recently called uh, Jack Hazard. And Diana, she very graciously took on the project of sewing masks for us. We came up with an idea, sort of visual presentation, uh, sewing pattern. I bought some wearers football patches, et cetera, et cetera. And we decided that we would just make them available for free basically name what you want price so anyone who wanted one could get one for free with free shipping anywhere in the world and we made a hundred and they sold out in less than an hour so which was overwhelming and blown away by that level of interest and support and so now we're trying to make some more um and working on that but that was the create that was a product of being creative but creative with ideas as opposed to creative with you know stamping brand names and scanning it into Photoshop, that was just kind of experimenting with what we could do to help people. So I think hopefully, if anything, this lockdown will allow people to get in their heads somewhat in a healthy way. And if they can find time to escape from the inevitable problems that this is going to cause to a lot of people, I hope that they can search within and, and, and find the creativity or confidence to make in whatever definition you want to assign to making uh, make uh, you know make plans to get out of debt or make plans to paint or make plans to write or whatever it is I think for me creativity hopefully should have some level of renaissance and I'm already seeing that somewhat online with people for reformatting their businesses to help those in need with masks or other equipment or um, working on charity projects and everything else. So yeah, long-winded answer, but I think creativity, hopefully we'll see a renaissance in a way that we haven't seen for decades and decades uh, in the, in the short to midterm. I want to ask about some of the other projects you guys have going on because you mentioned those in the introduction and you're doing a lot of different things. And one of them is something that was founded recently, co-founded by Nathan Theorycraft and Zach has founded Tiger 11 Sports and Entertainment. Um, let's go with Zach first. What's Tiger 11 Sports and Entertainment? Sure. Um, yeah, Tiger 11 is a, a company that I, I haven't 
put out much about. Um, it's basically designed ar- around similar philosophies as our creative wing with Common Goal, but it focuses a bit closer to the field uh, in football, specifically things like um, intermediation, uh, player representation and advisory, um, you know, working with businesses around the sport, um, helping with sporting methodology at clubs who maybe don't otherwise have uh, the ability to um, acquire the most sophisticated systems of, you know, whether it's recruitment or, or stuff they do behind the scenes in core business. Um, so, yeah, I just felt like there was a, a, a need there that I could see. And, and I've been very lucky um, and fortunate over the years to meet a lot of wonderful people um, sort of far beyond the creative realm of football. And, and uh, they were very encouraging and, and very welcoming and sort of convinced me that this was a, a leap that I could take. And it, it's always been something that I've been interested in. Cool. So, yeah, Nathan, uh, fill me in on Theorycraft. So, towards the, well, through Zach, I actually met one of my co-founders <laughs> at Theorycraft, uh, Lauren, who Zach has known from, was it high school days? Zach? Yeah, even before, yeah. Even before. So, I moved to America, and Zach introduced me to a friend because I'd, I had a passion and interest in gaming and esports for a long time, all of my life. Um, but I had never worked in the field necessarily. There was a lot of transferable skills and uh, a passion and interest there. And Zach introduced me to a friend, his his friend Lauren, who became a co-founder on Theorycraft, which is very similar in essence, in many ways, to Common Goal. It is a consultancy, strategic advisory firm, and uh, creative house, creative studio around the gaming and esports worlds. So we founded it late last year with myself, Lauren, uh, a friend Bryce Bloom, and another friend, Monte Cristo, Chris Michaels. I, Michaels, I'm sorry for Chris, to Chris, for, to Monte for not being able to pronounce his name properly, but uh, we, uh, we founded that all together. And then Monte actually had another opportunity come up and he he is officially joined another company because of extenuating circumstances in the family situation and he wanted a little bit more of a solid foundation than a startup creative studio to to pay the bills so there's three of us behind it now we're working with a number of clients in the space a bunch of different startups on branding and advisory we help companies in many different ways, similar to how we do at Common Goal, a lot of advisory and consultation on business strategy and, and similar. And yeah, it's it's been it's been fun. It's been an adventure. I come into that project as much more of a creative director as opposed to uh, an esports insider. So I don't have the decade long experience in esports or gaming that as I do in soccer, but it's been fantastic. It's been a lot of fun. We've worked with some amazing people and it's, uh, you know, furthering my track record of basically just working on things that excite me, which is, you know, the, the, the best and best and most exciting possible solution and, and pathway in a career. I feel like I've always found a way to work on things that I enjoy. So I'm very blessed that I can do that and work in gaming and I can also work in soccer with Zach and Zach is doing something he's passionate about with Tiger 11 and all of these things operate within an orbit of each other while separate entities, they all 
in some way complement each other. You know, if a soccer team has a gaming question or if a player has a branding question, we've probably got a solution and a, a way to work through that that problem. So it's been very rewarding and a fun few months. And these are two of your newer projects. You guys, I think maybe even when we did the last interview in 2018 in Moscow, whereas football and common goal were things you were working on then. What are you doing these days, Zach, with Where's Football? Yeah, I mean, uh, Where's Football has sort of uh, always been something that we've just, uh, we've always been able to return to and, and sort of use it as a, a breath of fresh air. I mean, for the most part, it, it exists outside of our our day-to-day work. It's a passion project at its core. It's something that we we use to really um, discover, you know, sort of the, the breadth and depth of, of this world's love for its most popular game. And, and that has always persisted. It's something that, you know, together with uh, Eric Beard, who you know as well, who, who's one of our co-founders, um, we've, we've always been able to sort of return to it and, um, and look at it as something that we're excited to, to you know, take a bite out of um, at the end of a, a really long and busy day. Um, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I suffer from that sickness of, of really just being in totally in love with a sport. Um, I should probably put it down for periods of time, but uh, that always is a, is a breath of fresh air. And um, yeah, I, I think sometimes it, it crosses over into work, but for the most part, we've been spending this time figuring out how we can give back um, to the sport and, and how we can, you know, whether that's through masks or charitable um, initiatives or simply telling a story and giving someone a platform that they wouldn't otherwise have. That's that's really been sort of our um, our sort of uh, impetus at this point um, is, is how can we use this as a platform for good and a platform to give back. Now, before we wind this thing up, I got one more question because you guys not that long ago were over in Japan doing some cool work <laughs> with soccer. What were you doing over there? Wow. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're we're we've been very lucky um, to do some work with J League um, over there, and I think more than anything else, it was uh, uh, a really fun kind of trip in general. Just beyond work, we had we had a great time and, and got to do a lot of things that we've always wanted to do. Nathan had always wanted to go. Um, Japan, in some ways, intertwines with my my family's uh, sort of history of, of travel when I was younger. Um, my dad worked with some some companies over there, um, and yeah, it's, it's always been a place that I've really admired on a sporting level. Um, and we're working with them in a few different ways, but um, mostly as a sort of international strategic consultants, working on sort of telling the the world so much of what we love about their brand of the sport. Um, which, for those who um, don't know much about it, I think uh, you know it has tremendously passionate fans. Um, it has a, a culture of just uh, really considerable respect in the stadium, um, which is probably unsurprising to anyone who's seen, you know, the the footage at the World Cup of yeah, Japan's supporters, you know, picking up trash in their section after the games and stuff like that. But I think um, it goes far beyond that. I think it's just this uh, this league that exhibits unbelievable vibrancy in the stands and on the pitch, um, and that's twinned with a culture of respect a culture of, you know, really, uh, really sophisticated artistry in terms of how the teams are named and a lot of the creative that they put out. Um, and obviously there's been some of the, the biggest names in football who have gone over there to play, including, you know, currently Andres Iniesta at Vissel Kobe. So uh, for us, it was, it was a really, really fun time. We got to be embedded with some of the teams. We got to go to their training grounds. We got to interview a lot of the players and um, a lot of players are now 
some of our friends and it's been fun during this time of, uh, you know, not having much football and to sort of check in with them um, and, and sort of hear their stories of uh, some of them have just recently moved from, you know, Brazil to Japan, for instance. And that's been a really interesting transition during normal times. And then right now, obviously, it's a it's another added layer of kind of that that cultural experience and, and where they find themselves. And I think, you know, that's that's always been what we've loved about what we do is that we get to meet a lot of interesting people with a lot of stories through football. Yeah. Could I just add as a sort of final note on, on top of that, maybe a bit more abstract, but it can be my parting shower thought, so to speak. We, Zach and I and Eric and other people that we've had the pleasure of working with in the space, in the soccer space, I think there is something to be said for the the goal that we've we've had or whether we've known it or not be it deliberate or not it's that football is so different in every corner of the world you know you some people think european soccer is the be all and end all and as an englishman growing up in the uk and spending time here obviously but growing up in the uk it's all you ever know is that the premier league and the football league is the center of the universe and i'm sure the same is true for different leagues around the world but if there's one thing that has really become apparent over the last few years of you know going to brazil for a world cup going to russia for a world cup visiting the j league in japan spending a lot of time working within mls in the last decade and a half there is Football is so different. Soccer is so different in so many territories and in so many nuanced ways in every corner of the world. And being able to highlight that and and work within different types of the game that we all know is so rewarding and I think is really powerful on a personal level to 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 really complement the Grant, you probably know this and I'm sure a lot of the listeners do too, that the feeling that you get when you travel somewhere, that feeling is enhanced often with with soccer. And I think the ability to tell those stories and work in different cultures and communities in vastly different parts of the world with vastly different soccer cultures is uh, the most rewarding of all. And to your point, the question about Japan really drove that home for me. It was a country I'd never been and always wanted to go to. And it really, it kind of put the period at the end of the sentence for me. It was like, wow, this is really different, but exactly the same in so many ways. And it just, yeah, it allowed me to realize that working in soccer is rewarding on so many levels. And I hope that in the most uh, non-problematic way possible, whether it's through foreign governments or whatever, and like, avoiding issues we can go to world cups for the next multitude of decades and uh experience what the people on the ground have to say and experience for their game so yeah well i just want to thank you guys again for all the amazing work you did or you did on my uh on my podcast uh it's something i'm proud of uh and just such a great experience working with you as we sign off, where can people find you on social? I don't know that you'll want to find me personally on social, but um, <laughs> you, you can find uh, uh, Twitter's a great a great place to find us um, just because I think it's the it, it naturally lends itself well to, to discourse. You can find our projects at uh, at Where is Football, at Common Goal. Um, 
Nathan, you're, you're Nathan McVitie, spelled with an E. I'm that damn yank um, because I was once and still am a very annoying American person who is in England sometimes. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so much for having us. Uh, it's sincerely appreciated. And, and just an additional level of thanks as well for, I think right now it's, uh, it, it's a time where I'm, I'm enormously grateful for my health and the health of my loved ones and indeed very grateful for healthcare workers who are keeping us safe and comfortable and connected right now during this crisis. Um, and I think that also includes uh, the voice that you and your wife, Dr. Selene Gounder, have, have had in society during this moment. It's been, uh, you know, you, you can really tell who uh, who's stepping up to the plate right now and, and cutting through the, the noise of misinformation and selfishness. And you guys have done a really wonderful job. So I just want to thank you for that as well. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate you coming on the yeah. show. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Jurgen Klopp, Nathan McVitie, and Zach Goldman, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.